6 through 21. Every, um, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thanks, Sharon. Hey, everybody. You may not have noticed when we read the passage, and you might want to keep those Bibles open because I will refer to them quite a good bit today. Um, you may have noticed that there are a couple pass verses in that passage that are a little difficult to know exactly what they're talking about. Um, actually, two of the hardest passages to interpret in the entire New Testament are in these just few verses we're going to look at today. Um, but f before we talk about that, one of the things that's pretty common in culturally right now is how it's considered very important in order to be the kind of person you're supposed to be, to have a very strong sense of personal uncertainty about most of the things in life. That, that is, um, whether or not you are an intellectually well-structured person, an emotionally well-structured person, has to do with whether or not you believe a lot of things can't be known and we can't really be sure about a lot of things and you shouldn't be too dogmatic and so on. And the more open you are in that sense, the more uncertain you profess to be, the more mature you appear to be intellectually, because you must be like Socrates who professed to know nothing but really thought he knew everything. Which is what tends to happen when people are like that. Now that is a total fallacy. Um, the more people think they don't know, the less they think they know that restrains them, and they do whatever they want, and they actually live terribly brutal lives towards other people. Um, it is actually a perversion of a Christian virtue called humility, 
which is to know what you know and to know what you don't know, and to know how you're supposed to know the things you know, and to know how you're supposed to not know the things you don't know, which is much harder than just pretending you don't know things and then acting like you know everything and doing what you want. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some great insights in the secular emphasis on not being so sure you know things you don't know. I'm not saying that's not true. But what I, I want to say is this. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote the entire book of 1 John so that its readers would have knowledge, certain knowledge, that would lead to confidence that they could live out. That they would have to live out humbly, but his intention was that they would know something. That they would know that they had eternal life in the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, that they had eternal life in him, and that that would produce a certain kind of confidence that they could live out. And it is the, and it, that is a universal human need that cannot be met by uncertainty. The verse where this becomes most clear is just in the middle of the passage for today, in verse 13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's the whole purpose of the whole book, is he wants people who profess belief in Jesus, who believe in Jesus, to actually know they're believing in the right one, and that the, what it produces is real eternal life, so that that can produce everything that that security is meant to produce. And so standing secure in Jesus is meant to then lead to a kind of confidence with God that allows us to live the way we're meant to live. And so security in Christ is meant to produce confidence in God. Security in Christ produces confidence in God. You really can't have the kind of confidence we're meant to have in God without having a sense of security and without that sense of security being profoundly in Christ. Now, I'm going to break that down into two parts. One is the security is in Christ, and the second is the confidence that that's meant to produce. The first is this, and for those of you who might be new today, and you haven't been here for the last six weeks, we've been talking all the way through First John about assurance, and that assurance is based in objective external criteria that you can see in people's lives whether or not they really believe something. And so though our security in Christ is authenticated through our actions— the security itself is in Christ, not our actions. Now, here's why that's important. If you go through the book of 1 John, the book of John is about assurance. And what John says, argues in the book, is if you really want to know if somebody's in Christ, whether or not they've received Christ, whether they've experienced regeneration, whether they've received the Spirit, all that's bound up in Christian salvation, if you really want to know if that's actually happened, you want to authenticate it to make sure it's not counterfeit, you look for certain results that this always produces. And if real salvation has happened, there are seven things you can look for that are just always produced. And there are these, right? The person professes to believe in Jesus as Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. Two, that they love other people in which Christ is being formed in, that is, brothers and sisters in Christ. They obey God's commands. They believe Jesus is right about stuff, right? They experience the Spirit's anointing, which there's a whole sermon on that from two weeks ago, if you want to hear it. They don't love the world to the extent to which the world is set against the purposes of God. They aren't in love with those set against purposes. That is, they agree with how God sees his creation and universe and reality. 
they stop walking in sin and they start walking in Jesus and they remain overcome and persevere over time. Now, it's very easy to take a step from something that can bring the feeling of assurance to then act as though this is where your security comes from. And that will lead to the total destruction of your faith and the opposite of the entire reason John wrote this book and Jesus came. See, because the minute you say, okay, if these things are present, then I can know if I'm really a believer. It's only a very short step to get from there to, well, then if I want to be sure that I have eternal life and that I am a believer, I need to work harder to do these things. And that is death. That is when believing in Jesus and receiving salvation by faith becomes another means of self-salvation that never, Jesus never intended, that you're not equipped to deliver on, and that is a rejection of the generosity of God in changing and saving us. I mean, try to lay it out like this. If that gets misunderstood, it's because security and assurance get confused with each other. Security is a thing. Assurance is a feeling. Okay? They're both important. Feelings are important. I'm not saying they're not important. But security is the thing that holds you fast. Assurance is the knowledge that you know you're being held fast. When I was in camping ministry, I did this thing called the zip line. Okay, it was, about, it was a 27-foot platform on a tree, and I worked the top of the tree, and you'd have kids climb up to the top with, on a, on a, they'd have a harness on, and then you'd clip on the thing that goes down, and then you'd unclip them from the thing they climbed up on, and then they were supposed to jump off of this platform, free fall for about five feet, catch the zip line, and go down. And we didn't do this with, it wasn't like an adventure experience for it, specifically adventurous people. It was, if you wanted to come to summer camp, you were going to do this. And so it didn't self-select for adventurous people. It selected for everybody who wanted to go to a camp where there were two girls for every boy, like late bloomer central. Um, for people who like to swim or just wanted to go to camp, whose parents wanted to get rid of them for a week, or foster children, the state would pay for them to come to summer camp. Got tons of foster children. And so they would come to camp, and they'd get to the top of this platform, and they were not psychologically prepared for this moment. And so they, they were secure. They were totally secure. But they didn't feel assured. And so it was my job to take, like, this crying eight-year-old, and, like, literally half of them at those were in tears at this point. And you'd say, okay, Jimmy, listen— there's like 7,000 pounds of holding on you right now, and you weigh like 60 pounds, okay? Like, but that doesn't, that didn't do it. That's never going to do it. You can tell them that all day long, and they'd be like, I don't want to jump off the bed. Right? And so what you'd have to do is you'd be like, okay, listen, I'm going to clip this into the tree so you can't go down, okay? And you'd clip them in the tree, and then you'd say, no, now, Jimmy, just sit down in your harness right here on the platform. Just sit down in it. Right? And you'd get them to, like, sit down so that they could feel it holding them, right? And everybody on the ground would be like, are you trying to poop? You know, but they, but they, needed, they needed this experience to, like, they, to feel themselves being held by it. And after they did that for a while, and after you argued with them and they cried for 25 more minutes, eventually they would jump and they'd have a great time going down the zip line. You see, the harness and the ropes and all that stuff, they were already secure. They were held secure. That was their security. The harness was their security. They had to achieve the feeling of assurance before they could engage in the activity with confidence. But it's very easy to confuse your feeling of assurance with security. And so a kid could mistie their harness and climb up and jump off and die feeling 100% secure, but not be secure. 
And so Christians always have to see these as separate. Security is in Jesus. It produces something all the time, which indicates that that salvation has taken place. And when we look at those things, those seven things I said before, that can help us to feel assured because it shows us certainty something's happening. Another simple example would be this. If you just touch yourself right here, you'll feel your radial pulse, right? Now, you are feeling your heart beating, but you are not feeling your beating heart, right? You're feeling your heart beating, but you're not feeling your beating heart, right? If you feel, no, no, if you go to the doctors, they don't feel your, your radial pulse and go, well, I feel a pulse, but let's just be sure and cut your chest open, right? No, if they feel your radial pulse, they know with 100% certainty you have a beating heart that is keeping you alive. They already kind of knew that because you walked in the room, but just to be sure, right? Similarly, the seven things that assure salvation are a little bit like a radial pulse. If they're there, you know the heart is beating, but they aren't the beating heart. And it's very simple, and Christians for generations have always done this. They have slipped from the gracious generosity of God to bring about transformation, to save them, and to change them, and to regenerate them, and to forgive them. And all these things God gives freely by His graciousness, and to trust in those things and walk in them to a process of religion in which we moralistically seek to save ourselves by being better person. We're going to do those seven things, and then we'll be saved. No. Jesus saves you. He produces those seven things, and they testify backwards that it's happened. In the medieval church, in Christianity, in the 12th century, there was something called um, the Ladder of Divine Ascent. It was the height of Catholic mysticism, and there were these steps, but everybody was invited to take to, to reach union with God. Like, if you wanted to have union with God, this is what you would do. You would cleanse your life from sin. You'd find out what, the, what bad things were going on in your life. And if you cleanse your life from those things, then God would then come and give you illumination. He'd teach you something about his truthfulness. And then if you responded to that, ultimately the next step was union with God. And so if you wanted union with God, you'd go through these steps to ultimate, ultimately achieve this incredible union with God spiritually. And that is exactly what happens when we confuse the evidence of assurance with the security that is in Christ. We turn something that is, we, we, we turn the divine escalator into a ladder. It doesn't matter how well you set up the spiritual ladder of salvation, you climb ladders. And that's just not what Jesus offered. And so the way, now in the, in the 12th century, it, it was this sort of mystical, monastic, whatever. And, it, and for all its mysticism, because you see, you might think that mysticism and moralism aren't the same thing. That, well, moralism is that, like, legalistic, it's like an unspiritual, like, way of doing religion where there's, like, no spirit in it. And mysticism is, like, embracing the spirit and, like, all that. It's the exact same impulse. It is trying to work your way to God. One is by these sort of spiritual disciplines and doing all these spiritual things so that you can reach some kind of spiritual union. The other is to morally work your way to God by doing all these right things so that God will morally approve of you. They're both essentially workspace systems of self-salvation. And so just as the medieval church created this incredibly spiritual Spiritual mysticism, you know what it produced? Those were the, those 300 years were the worst years of corruption Christianity ever suffered in its entire existence. Morally. Was in the height of monastic mysticism. It doesn't produce good things. It never has and it never will. 
And we can very easily look at the book of 1 John and see the seven things that point to real salvation, and we can say, I should do more of those seven things. I should, like, try to help you do more of those seven things, and, like, tell you you should do them better. And all we're going to produce is our own ladder of divine ascent. We're going to turn the grace and the generosity of God into a means of self-salvation where we'll become unhelpfully mystical and moralistic in ways that will destroy the faith of all of us, make us all hate each other, make us hateful to everybody watching us, and to produce um, something that looks like transformation but that isn't transformation. And what will not reside amidst us is love, truth, graciousness, kindness, and all the other fruits of the Spirit. We will have our own seven-step ladder of ascent, and it will be blasphemy and apostasy. Um, Every time we get a new crop of interns, I make them read this book, which does have more than 400 pages. Um, It's called Dynamics of Spiritual Life and Evangelical Theology of Renewal by Richard Lovelace. Um, It is the book where, I've said this a number of times, if I could only make somebody read one book besides the Bible, in addition to the Bible, that if they would read and study to prepare them for a life of full-time ministry, and that's all the training they were ever going to get, this is my book. And... um, So we make all the interns read it. All the new staff have to go through it. We're studying it with the interns right now. And one of the—in the preface, Loveless hits this thing. He's talking about this, and he says, Listen, ladders are always intimidating. And it's my conviction that Christians should always assume that they start each day at the top of the ladder, in contact with God, and renew this assumption whenever they appear to have slipped around. The triple way of classic mysticism, which moves from the stages of cleansing one's life through illumination towards union with God, seems to reverse the biblical order, which starts from union with Christ, claimed by faith, leading to the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and consequently cleansing through the process of sanctification. Growing in faith is the root of all spiritual growth. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you, when you believe, see, remember what, G, what John says is the command of God. He says, the command of God is for you to believe in his son. That's the command of God. First and foremost, for you to believe in his son. Because in believing in his son, you are forgiven of all moral iniquity, all deserved damnation, all of those things is put away. Your spiritual deadness is regenerated by the Holy Spirit so there can be real spiritual life in you. And the place where you most feel that will usually be in the regeneration of your conscience. That seat where all of the different places of your inner psychology meet and the moral center of your realization of what's real and what's out there and what God believes. You experience regeneration. You experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so God comes in himself in union with you. And... He then puts you—he puts his name on you through baptism, places you in this thing called the church, and in that, you then move on to grow in your faith, and transformation takes place as time goes on. That's the only way that works. You cannot do it the other way. You cannot start with transformation and eventually get to forgiveness and indwelling. And, uh, right? God insists— that salvation comes from him and through him. It's not something you perform. 
and to try to perform it is to reverse everything, and it's to believe that you can find security in something other than simply Christ, the Son of God, who died as an atoning sacrifice for you, who is the basis of you being set right with God, being regenerated by God spiritually, and being set on the right path, free from sin, to grow in Him spiritually. Right? Now, you might be wondering where this comes from in the passage, and it comes from the weird verses that started the passage, about the blood and the water and that whole bit. Remember that? Yeah. So if you look at it in reverse, it's clearest, I think, if we walk through it in reverse. So in verses 11 and 12, it basically says, this is the testimony, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the one who gives eternal life, right? That's what these verses are about. Now, in verses 9 and 10, it talks about how humans use testimonies and how God relates to that. So it says, um, you and I believe testimonies that people give. And if, and one testimony in something where we should be properly skeptical isn't enough testimony for us to believe it. You need more than one. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, it, for example, uh, um, convicting somebody of a crime, it explicitly says you can't convict somebody of a crime with only one testimony. Because it's he said, she said, right? So you have to have two or three witnesses to establish sufficient certainty to say you're guilty, right? So that's a situation which you should be somewhat skeptical, right? Charging somebody with guilt and punishing them as guilty. That's, a, that's where you should be maybe one of the highest places of human skepticism is being careful about punishing somebody for an alleged crime, right? And so he says in that situation, you need two or three trustworthy witnesses. And so he says this. Now, you and I accept testimony. Everything we believe is on the basis of testimony. Probably less than 5% of what you believe you have learned in some way other than somebody told you. We love to believe that we're all like derivative mathematicians and everything we believe we like sort of came up with ourselves. And it's just not true. Even the scientific knowledge we have, we were told in a class. And we went, oh, okay. And, and you shouldn't be ashamed of that. You shouldn't think that you're some, some, oh, like you're basically saying I'm like some country dolt that believes whatever. No, no. This is, it's the most efficient way for human beings to know anything. Right? I can work for years to like, in, through hard earning of painful knowledge, learn a one-sentence proposition, and I can pass it on to my kids in four seconds. And if they believe it and apply it, they have just engaged in the most efficient method of transformation and knowledge gaining possible. Now, the problem is, is that we normally don't, right? So John's saying it's just a fact that this is how we learn. This is how we believe things. But if you want to have a very high level of certainty, you need to have a level of certainty similar to this level of certainty you would need to convict somebody of a crime. And in Deuteronomy, God said, you should never do it on one person's word. It should always be two or three people's word. And he said, now, here's why this is important. Because A, it's not just a person testifying, it's God testifying. So that's better. And two, he's produced two, even three witnesses. That Jesus is his son, the savior of the world, and therefore you can have confidence in your security that he is who he said he is. Now, you might be like, okay, how does that work? Here's how it works. Um, the water, what does the water refer to, right? 
There's been a lot of ink spilled on what the water and the blood refers to. But virtually everybody at this time and subsequently has believed, and rightly so, that it refers to Jesus' baptism. Now, the reason why it's almost absolutely certain that that's the proper way to interpret the water is because that's the way the Orthodox Christians would have interpreted it and the heretical people that John is speaking against. He is conceding to them that they are right when they say that when Jesus was baptized, it showed that he became a spiritual Christ, an anointed one. The difference is, is that John is saying Jesus didn't become the anointed one, He was revealed as the anointed one in his baptism. And the way we know that is because the Spirit doesn't just testify in his coming through the water. The Spirit also testifies in his coming in the blood. That's why he says, that's why he says it's not just by the water, but by the blood. Because these, and the technical term for this is proto-Gnostic teachers. And if you're interested in this, you know, over a latte this afternoon, you can read Irenaeus' On the Heresies, and you can read about Marcion and company, and it'll be really fun. Um, But there was a a teaching that started in the first century that John was already writing against that basically said this, God is this spirit, pure spirit, and the thing that's actually wrong with you is that you are trapped in, in physicality, and it is only pure spirit that is salvation. And so periodically, God will anoint a embodied human with the spiritual knowledge to be freed, and if you receive and live according to and know that spiritual knowledge, you could be freed. And so therefore, there's no—you see, there's no atonement in that system. It's a self-salvation system. It's an enlightenment system. So nobody dies for sins. Sins are irrelevant, right? They're just part of the unhelpful thing that you're in the body, and we just need to get past that. And so what John is saying is he's saying, no, it wasn't just the water— to testify to Jesus. It was the water in and with the blood. That is, the ministry of Jesus as Messiah and Christ starts and ends with the testimony of the Spirit. You see, the Gnostics said that the Spirit came on the Christ in his baptism, but then left him before the crucifixion, which is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Sort of missing the point that he was quoting Psalm 22 about salvation and what he was doing. Right? But what John says, he says, no. In fact, in John's gospel, it's the only gospel in which when John recognizes Jesus is the one he's to baptize as the Christ, it says two things. One is he said, John says, this is the reason I had this ministry in the first place. It wasn't just to baptize people who were repentant so they could come back to God. It was to prepare the way for the Christ, the one who'd be revealed as God's anointed one. And when John sees him, do you know what he says? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. It's the only place in the Bible Jesus is called that. He's called that twice in the space of about 10 verses. Now, I don't know about you, but I—nobody is jonesing for that nickname, right? Nobody's kind of like, man, if I could just get people calling me the Lamb, I would get some respect, right? Like, I would just love to walk down the hall, and Jill be like, hey, Lamb, what's up? It's just, I don't want that, right? Nobody wants that, right? Jesus being the Lamb of God is a specific reference to the Old Testament in Leviticus where the Lamb is the sacrificial thing that, is, that substitutes for the sin of the human being and allows there to be atonement to be made. So when John says, I see the Spirit in the form of dove coming down on this Jesus who is the Christ, he's being revealed as God's anointed one, he is the Lamb of God, meaning that John saw at that moment that there was a bookend to the baptism of Jesus and his being revealed as the Christ and his death and resurrection into which he is more fully revealed as the Christ. That is that he is not some mystical teacher. He is the Son of God 
who has died as an atonement for the sins of the world, who is his anointed Christ, and the Spirit testifies to both ends, everything in the middle, and controls and clarifies who Jesus is. Why? So that you can know. And he's, the reason why he can say that it's the Spirit who testifies, and these three testify, is because it is the Spirit who is testifying in the water. The Spirit comes on Jesus in the form of the dove, declares he is the Christ. It is the Spirit who raises the body of the man Jesus from the dead. Right? God raised him from the dead by the power of his Spirit, so the Son of God is risen and declared the Son of God. Right? You remember in John's Gospel, he also records that it is that at that time in the crucifixion that— the sun shuts down for three hours or something like that. Like, there's this huge activity of power around Christ. Why? Because the Spirit is testifying this is the Son of God, so that the, the Roman centurion can say, surely this man was a Son of God. Right? And it is that same Spirit that produces inner assurance and personal conviction right now, accompanying the continued testimony about Jesus. So while I speak about what happened to Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit who right now says to those who will believe, that's right. This is true. This is trustworthy. There are, so therefore, God is testifying in three voices. That is, what John is saying, is he's fulfilling the greatest burden of proof in the Deuteronomy mandate for certainty that he's testifying in the water, he's testified in the blood, and he testifies directly in the Spirit. So that, how does he say that at the end? He says, those who understand this have his testimony where? In his heart, he says. Those who understand this, those who believe, have this testimony in their heart. The purpose of that is so that you and I would know that we aren't assured by a seven path of ladder ascent to earn our union with God. The reason God testifies like that is because he wants us to know that it is in the Christ. It is in Jesus. It is obeying God by believing in his Son and receiving the supernatural act of regeneration— the supernatural choice of justification or forgiveness, the supernatural transformation where we are set free from sin, called sanctification, the supernatural reality of God making us alive, moving us from death to life, and giving us eternal life, and coming into union with us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all of that. That is Christian salvation. It is a free gift, and it comes only by believing in the Son. And that's why the Spirit spends his testifying not on what we have to do, but on the identity of who Jesus is. Because it is that that, our, is, that is the basis of our security, and therefore it is that that is the basis of our confidence. Now, you might say something like, yeah, but Nick, if we're assured by whether or not we do those seven things, how do, like— how does that work? We just, we won't have confidence. Yeah, if you test yourself on the basis of those seven things, if you try to authenticate your faith, and you look at those seven things, and they are not operational in your life at all, the question is, now what? And you see, you're falling into mysticism and moralism if the now what is, I need to do those seven things. 
You're becoming a Christian if you say, I need to turn to Jesus so that he can do that work in me, so that he can save me, so that he can forgive me, so that he can change me, so that he can regenerate me, so that he can indwell me, so that he will produce in me, if I simply combine it with faith, those seven things. Now, if we recognize that our security is in Jesus, that is meant to produce in us a confidence in God so that we can live confidently in the knowledge of our security in Jesus. In fact, in, the, in this verse in 13 and 14, he act, John specifically combines, and he doesn't just combine it with um, believing in Jesus, but he specifically combines it with our belief that we've actually received eternal life, which is very abhorrent to a lot of the people who live around us in our culture. There are a lot of people in our culture who will allow you to believe that, like, you believe something that's true, so long as it doesn't affect what they believe is true. But if you say, I have eternal life, I'm, I'm like, saved already— like, I am heaven-bound. Like, I am set right with God permanently. They don't like that idea. They think that that basically is just going to produce badness. And they will never admit this, but that's really because they only believe— they believe fear is the only effective motivation. Because if you say, I've been made right with God, and out of thankfulness and joy, I'm going to follow them, and he's taken away all the motivation of fear, because I know right now I have eternal life, and they're like, there's no—no, that's going to produce bad stuff— and you work through the philosophy of that, that can't mean anything but they believe the motivation of fear is the only thing that produces good behavior. And the whole gospel is partially designed to prove that that is false. That you can receive eternal life and your fear of damnation can be taken away and you can still be sufficiently motivated out of love and spiritual transformation to become everything you were meant to be even when there is no fear left. And if you think that's impossible, that's why Christianity is a supernatural religion. Of course it is. It's not supposed to work if the God of the faith doesn't exist. It's not a sociological philosophy. It's not a mechanism of therapy. It's a theology and a faith. And so you can see that the receiving of eternal life and knowing that you have eternal life and confidence to turn to God, specifically in this context in prayer, are linked together directly. So there's three ways in which we are meant to have confidence in God that this passage outlines. The first is, is that we have confidence to, to pray for ourselves spiritually, right? John says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Now, one of the things to pay attention to in that passage is that the word have is a past tense word. Isn't that kind of interesting? Normally people think, I've prayed for something, I want something in the future, and like a big pile of money or a spouse or something, and I've prayed for it now, and my hope is, is that I'm going to receive it. You see, the whole logic of this verse is, is that the person who prays for something, they have it, and apparently it's something you can have and not know you have it. Which narrows down dramatically the content of what could be being prayed for here. And that should be clarified by the statement that if we pray anything in his will, what is God's will? Well, it might be God's will that I would have a good spouse. 
Yes, there, sure. But preeminently God's will is that you would be like Jesus. That is his preeminent will. That is his main will. All the other things are kind of way down here on the list. And if you start praying, and the only thing that matters to you when you're praying is Jesus' prayer request for you. That's why we have that as a small group prayer request. That's why when you pray in your small groups, you're supposed to ask the question, what would Jesus' prayer request for me be? You will find out very quickly that his prayer request would be about character, godliness, faith, trust, confidence, strength, courage, stuff that if he gives you, and you hadn't yet combined it with faith because you, you, you're not sure if you're confident enough to know that he's given it to you, you could not believe you have it, and then you could not combine it with faith, and it could do nothing in you. And you see, what John is saying is he's saying, listen, if we know we know him, and he's revealed to us his will, then we are talking to somebody we know in accordance with what they want, and when that happens, people respond. Right? Like, if I don't know you, and you come up to me, and you're like, Nick, let's go get a deep dish pizza, I'm going to be like, no. I don't eat those casseroles. Right? And, but if, but if, like, you're from Chicago, and, like, you bumped into, like, like a Mike Didka-era Bears fan with, like, the mustache and everything, um, and you're like, hey, and you know that guy, like, he's your uncle, and you're like, and he owns a pizzeria, and you're like, hey, let's get a deep dish. Be, like, you're getting a deep dish. It's going to happen. Because you know him, and you are in line with his will. It's going to happen. And what John is saying is, you see, when you have confidence in Christ, and you know what he's done, and you know what he's doing, and you have security in that, and, and you're part of it, and you're responding by faith to it, and you're, you're walking spiritually in his spirit, and you're doing that, you're going to be praying for things that Jesus wants, and you just are going to get those. And he's not even saying, if you pray for a car in his will, you'll get it. That's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that if you, the same thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be filled. This is another way to say what John's saying right here. And if you pray for that, and you have your security rooted in Jesus and who he is— and that you know you're properly related to him, and he knows you, and you know him, and that you know what he wants, and what he's after, and what he's trying to accomplish in you, and you pray it, you have it. And therefore, you can have the confidence, and therefore, the courage to step out in it. Because all spiritual growth is by faith. And that doesn't mean do it self-righteously, but it means you do it actively. You have to believe him. And you can believe him for you. You can have confidence that you can change. Second thing is, we can have confidence to pray for straying believers. <coughs> it's very easy to feel like not only do people not change for the better, but when people start going off the deep end, they're going off the deep end. Do you notice that how cynical we are? We believe people can change for the worse, right? By how we behave, we totally believe people can change for the worse. People change for the worse all the time. But for some reason, we don't believe people can change for the better, which is probably a contradiction, right? And so when we're 
in the church and we see another person who professes to believe in Jesus and we feel like there's some evidence of that in their life and then they start doing something that, is, that Jesus says is wrong, is totally incompatible with Christian faith and we don't know what to do and there's part of us that would naturally lose our confidence and we'd say, that person's, we can't control them, that person's just going to do what they're going to do, they're probably going to be gone, I don't know if to tell you. What John is saying is, no, 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 no. When somebody is doing a sin that doesn't lead to death, you pray for them. Right? So he says, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray that God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, and the one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot touch him, cannot harm him. Now, you might think, well, the book of Romans explicitly says that the wages of sin is death, like all sin leads to death. So what is he talking about? Right? This is the other difficult verse. Death in this context, and, and life in this context, refers to eternal life, not physical life and death. I can't get into all the reasons why that's the case. So this is referring to damnation and salvation. And so if you replace the word death with apostasy, that is, ir irrevocably leaving the faith unto damnation, it begins to make sense. Because that's what it means. So let me give you an example of what, of what this would look like. Say that there's a hypothetical woman named Jan, okay? And let's say Jan travels for work, and she's been married for several years, and has a couple little kids, and things just aren't going well at home, and she's just kind of strung out, tired, things aren't going well, and she, she, she gets away, you know, she meets with her client, she's going to the sushi place across the street from her hotel, and she just meets this really cool guy, and they talk, and they really hit it off, and five hours later, they're closing the place, and 13 hours later, she's in his bed. And she's a Christian, she goes to church, and she loves Jesus, and she is pretty conscience-stricken, and she feels terrible, and she's like, what did I do, and I'm such a mess, right? Sometimes that's referred to as a sin of infirmity, right? Our discipleship and our self-control wasn't strong enough to stop us from falling into something. Now, take another example. Um, Jan goes on the business trip, meets this guy, doesn't end up in his hotel room, but thinks, you know, I deserve to be happy, and things aren't going well, and this guy made me feel alive, and it's just really frustrating, and uh, Jesus is loving, and if you love people, don't you want them to be happy? And so doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? And certainly, I've been in this marriage for this number of years, and there's no evidence that I'm imminently going to become happy in this relationship, and it's terrible, and there's no way God would want me to sort of stick this out, and so isn't it true that probably in certain circumstances, maybe adultery or divorce, even where the Bible explicitly forbids it, it's probably right, and maybe that was just for those primitive people that were more agrarianly dependent, and there was no social security system, and you can get really sophisticated with all this, but what happens? Here's what happens, is that in order to make room for this narrative— You've got to turn to what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's revealed about himself and start changing things, right? So you've got to erase the word Lord, which means undisputed master, and you write in something like personal savior, special friend, personal uh, 
old parent wringing their hands at my life because they don't understand things, whatever. You got to go in there and you got to rework that. And then you got to rework the horizon of eternity because nobody thinks that way who understands that their life is like a drop in eternity and that God, they're going to be forever happy in God. And like, you basically have to become an atheist in terms of the horizon of how long you're going to exist as a being. So you, you cut out eternity and you cut that back to about 55 more years from now or whatever. And you place that in its moral proportion of something else. And then you sort of like take God's mercy and you attack You attack his sense of graciousness You attack his sense of justice and righteousness In the Bible laid out And you sort of like diminish it and change it And bend it to try to fit And like re-drill through it And then, right, and you just start Until you can get this thing To fit The problem is, is when you do that You no longer have Jesus you no longer have the gospel. You no longer have the saving message. You just—you no longer—it's no longer there anymore. And so you still have Jesus written on the wall, but what you've created is you've bent up an idol for yourself that you still call Jesus, but Jesus is no longer present. And so you now have your thing that you wanted, and there's a lot of stuff that rushes in behind that thing. In the presence of one sin that changes everything, rushes in many sins, right? And so what happens is, it's the same sin, adultery. But there is a sin that leads to death. That is, there is a sin that leads to apostasy. There is a sin that, in order for you to make it fit, it destroys the whole gospel. It destroys what Jesus is supposed to be. You remake God in your own image, and you produce an idol for yourself that cannot save you. And that is what you commit yourself and commit yourself and commit yourself to, and you shield yourself from any correction, and you shield yourself from anybody arguing the opposite direction, and you, you, you label those things in ways that make you feel good, and you engage in a shield of demagoguery against the actual gospel, and you commit yourself again and again and again until it produces apostasy, and apostasy produces death. And what John is saying is, he says, listen, There are sins that don't lead to death. There are sins of infirmity. There are people who get wayward. There are people that even start to think that way. But listen, what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, if that person has been born of God, like if it's happened, if they've really believed in Jesus and God has saved them and regenerated them, and if the Spirit is in them, and if they've become Christ's sheep, the one who was born of God, that is in the incarnate one, Jesus, will keep them. And the evil one ultimately will not get them. And so therefore, you can have confidence to pray for them. Because it is God's will, if they are his, that he will save them from that sin. So that it will not lead to death, and he will give them life. And so it says, there is a sin that leads to death— And I'm not saying that he should pray about that. That does not mean that if somebody's wayward and they're not responding to you, that you stop praying for them. Notice that the word is not him or her. The word is that. What he's saying is this. He's saying, if you understand the way this works, that those who are not of us were never of us, like it says in chapter 2, that if those who look like they were Christians show themselves in perseverance that they aren't, ultimately, that they were never of us, but those who are born of God, the one who was born of God will ultimately protect. What that means is, is that damnation is a real thing. And people who may have professed the name of Jesus at some point, 
but that who ultimately commit a sin that leads to death and end up in apostasy and therefore eternal death, which is a horrible thing that we all hate. You see, our natural tendency would be to turn to God and say, God, don't let, don't do it that way. Right? Like, there's got to be a way where you cannot, where damnation and apostasy and the shrinking of souls and the destruction and eternal death, and that just doesn't have to be part of the equation. There's got to be a way where that doesn't have to be part of the equation. Will you please do that so that my cousin or my mom or my whatever won't be in eternal death? Can you please? And what he's saying is, I'm not telling you to pray that way. If, if you want to have confidence that God is going to do something, here's a hint. Don't pray against him and his character. Just don't, don't waste your time and don't commit the sin of blasphemy in order to attempt to save somebody from the result of apostasy. God is who God is. He is not personally insecure. He's not concerned that he's going to fly off the handle. He's not ever going to do anything that is disproportionate in his justice. His mercy and his graciousness and his generosity and his love is perfectly balanced and perfectly in conjunction and perfectly coordinate with every other capacity that he has. Every execution of justice is in perfect symbiotic unity with every molecule of his character. And therefore, for you to ask God to structure reality differently, that there would not be a sin that leads to death, is just simply not only futile, but utterly blasphemous. But what you can have confidence to do is you can have confidence to pray for that person. Because then you could be praying in the will of God. Then you could be praying as one born of God, to the one who was born of God, Jesus, for the one that you believe may have been born of God, that, that the shepherd would lead that sheep back rather than allow him to be lost. And the last thing is confidence to overcome the world. There's a number of places in First John, but especially two in First John 5, in the first five verses, that says that those who are born of God overcome the world. And he says, listen, we know that we know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And what he means by that is this, is not that God has abdicated his divine rule and providence. That's not what he means. What he means is if you go out those doors and you travel around this sphere, you are not going to get the feeling like you are riding around in the kingdom of Jesus. That's what, that's what he means by that. Nobody goes out into the world who knows Jesus and goes, oh my gosh, I think I'm in the kingdom of God. Like this is— this is exactly what Jesus would do. Like, everything around me, it's like Jesus is in charge, and like the bureaucracy is perfectly set up, and everybody's doing what Jesus would want to do, and this—it's happening. This is really—there is nowhere in the world that has ever existed throughout all time that has ever been like that. And there will not be a time when it will be like that until Jesus is actually reigning. And he has divided the wheat from the tares— and done his work of judgment, and really set up his complete kingdom. So therefore, we as Christians should not be naive about that. But he says, but here's what we also know. We also know that the Son of God has come so that we would have understanding, and so that we may know him who is the truth. So in the midst of an entire culture that's going to say something else is true— He's like, we've actually had another kingdom come in a person who has helped us to understand who he is 
and who has become one with us, in union with us spiritually, so that we can say, and we are in him who is true, even the Son, Jesus Christ, who is true God and eternal life. So he's saying not only has he given us understanding, but in union with him, we belong to him and he belongs to us, and in that we have his life, which is eternal life. So you don't have to be afraid of anybody or anything, whether it's somebody who bears the sword or whether it's just a culture that denies God exists. You can stand in front of the person who says, believe in my God or I'll kill you. Or you can be, well, on Wednesday we were downtown and while we were trying to pray, atheists were yelling, you're just kidding yourselves. This is stupid. Literally while Christians were trying to pray for the nation. Which, and I understand where they're coming from, but it is kind of obnoxious. And you can be in a culture that just treats you like you're an idiot too. And neither one has to overcome us. Neither one. Because even though the world is under the control of the evil one in that sense, and that that is part of God's providence and part of his work of salvation, there is one who has come that we would understand him, be in him, and we would be in union with the one who is God, and through that, we would have eternal life. Which leaves basically just one command to leave us with, which is basically the negative of the positive believe in Jesus. The positive is, here's the command of God to believe in his son. If you just write that in the negative, it's simply this. Don't make another God and believe in it. Believe in the Christ who is the Son and little children. Therefore, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from anything that competes with Jesus. He's your security. He's the only security that there is. God has thrice testified to his truth in the water, the blood, and the Spirit. He has offered you everything freely through the generosity of the death of his Son, his one command to you to be saved is that you would believe in his son. He will forgive you. He will regenerate you. He will empower you by his spirit. He will give you his righteousness. He will come into union with you. He will give you authority to follow him in the world. He will place you in the community of his church. He will do all those things. You will just combine them with faith, and they will produce the radial pulse of the seven things that will give you the feeling of assurance to know that his grace is operating in you, and it's not counterfeit. And that security in Christ will give you confidence to deal with yourself and to know that when you pray according to what Jesus is trying to create in you, that he answers you. It'll give you the confidence to pray for others, Christians or non-Christians, that God will fulfill his redeeming will and when you pray in that direction, he does great things. And don't waste your time praying against his character. And that you can overcome the world. That though the whole world is under the grip of the evil one, ideologically and structurally in lots of ways, there's one who has come to give us understanding, bring us into union with God himself, so we can participate in the divine nature itself as image bearers of God, and to possess eternal life even now, so that we can live it out humbly, but with confidence. Because security in Christ produces confidence in God. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we end this series on 1 John, I pray that these four or five pages in people's Bibles would be anchors for the rest of their lives. I pray that every time um, there is a loss of assurance, there is a question about security, there is whatever— where they, they, won, 